the start button on the dryer made that unfortunate, tired buzzing sound when I pressed it. Nothing else happened. So I proceeded to jam on it forcefully, as if maybe that would make a difference. Nothing. But then that awful smell of fried electricity started to fill the room. This was the day after Christmas, and I felt the hot tears beginning to build behind my eyes. It wasn't really the mounting pile of laundry that was frustrating, and I recognized that this was absolutely a privileged problem to have. No, more than that, it was the sinking sense that I was only barely keeping my head above the water. My husband, Jesse, had started grad school a few months earlier, and we were still trying to learn how to juggle his school and my work and our parenting and everything else. And that week, like the traveler in this parable, I felt about half dead. I was also embarrassed by how overwhelmed I felt. This wasn't a crisis. It wasn't a terrible diagnosis. It, it was just regular life, which, as it turns out, can be really hard. And it's so easy to stop right there, to get stuck, to let the struggle be all that we can see. When we catch up with Jesus today, he's in a, a funny combination of a debate contest and a pastoral visit. This lawyer, who is maybe better understood as a scholar of the law, of the law of Moses, he's been challenging Jesus on what it takes to really fully live with God. But as much as he's testing Jesus... I think he's also revealing his own deep longing and fear. He's chewing on huge questions. How can we have life that does not end? Or put another way, how can we avoid getting trapped in that which is deadening? With whom should I share this good life? Jesus responds as he so often does through story. And folks tend to know the parable of the Good Samaritan pretty well, right? It's the example of this most unlikely source of com compassion, this care that comes from your sworn enemy. But within the parable. Jesus is also teaching through the example of where he places his attention, of what's worth his breath. Have you ever noticed that Jesus gives only a passing mention to the robbers 
or to the distracted or maybe cowardly priest and Levite. But then he lavishes us with details on how the Samaritan shows mercy. How he is moved. The the Greek here is more like gut-wrenched with compassion. It's the compassion that Jesus feels when he meets a woman, a widow, at her son's funeral. It's the same compassion that the prodigal son's father feels when he sees this one he feared was long dead. It is a visceral urge to offer care. And Jesus details this care also. How the Samaritan comes pouring oil to clean and then wine to numb the wounds before bandaging them. How he heaves the man who cannot support even his own weight up onto the donkey. How he brings him to an inn and nurses him there as he begins to heal. How he spends two days' wages on this man's stay. And then promises that he's good for any further debt when he returns. Each detail is worth our careful consideration, worth passing on for all these years. And this rendering of the parable, it reminds me of a modern teaching on how communities can become more healthy, offered first by a scholar named David Cooperider. He developed what he calls the heliotropic hypothesis. Helio, as in the sun, and tropic, as in to turn, to grow. The idea is that people and communities can act like plants. That just as plants can turn and grow towards the light, we as people can also, if we are willing to choose that way. That the more we focus in on what is good, what is healthy, what is righteous, the more we will grow in that direction. But we have to really look at this goodness. We have to immerse ourselves in its language. We have to study carefully how it moves, trace how it plays out if we are going to live it ourselves. By fixing our attention there, Cooper Ryder teaches, this is how the growth comes. This is how we can move towards abundant life. And the very bones of this parable then are core to its message. We hear four times as much about the Samaritan's actions as about each of the others who are doing the violence or the ignoring. Pay attention to these details of compassion Jesus seems to be urging us. Pay attention to the mercy. The violence matters. Yes, acknowledge it. But then turn, give yourself and your attention to that mercy. I attempted to muddle through that week after Christmas 
recovering from all the excitement, trying to help Jesse get caught up on his schoolwork. But by the morning of New Year's Eve, I was done. I called up some friends, desperate. And then I stuffed all of our dirty laundry into my car and buckled the kids in and with tears in my eyes I drove to their house. I needed help. We had so much laundry that it quickly became clear that we would be there for a long time. (laughs) And we settled in. They fed me. They set up a huge baking project for my kids and when the, the mixer just happened to be lifted up so that the sugar went flying everywhere, they just laughed. Eventually, we retreated to the backyard where my kids began to dig in the thankfully as yet unplanted raised garden beds and then later on buried themselves in the raised garden beds. And so it was that afternoon that I brought my now cold and muddy kids in to bathe them, filthy as they were, in my friend's tub. As my friends started yet another load of our now even dirtier laundry. (laughs) And I paused right there. I noticed that I was breathing again. I thought, my God, this is what mercy feels like. How can I really live always? Who are my neighbors? Who's in it with me? The lawyer asks these wonderfully basic questions, questions that are also our questions. And I think that Jesus is answering them both with this parable. For this to happen, for there to be life, for there to be neighbors, we have to look for mercy. Even though we may start at the ditch, either in the ditch or drawing near to the ditch, Jesus is pulling our attention to the mercy, to notice the pain, to see the need, but then to turn ourselves to mercy. By the time the sun was setting on New Year's Eve, all our laundry was clean and folded and I was driving my kids home to put them to bed. But something greater had shifted in me. My friend's gentle mercy, their scooping up my tired self and loving on my kids, it pulled me out of my frantic mind and down into my gut to the place where compassion can reshape us. It reminded me that we are all just taking turns, being the one in the ditch and the one offering a hand. More than anything, though, this 
exchange of mercy on that day, it showed me how these people were not just friends, but family. Whether we are giving it or receiving it, mercy changes us. It takes us from being people who just exist in each other's vicinity, and it makes us neighbors. It makes us kin. The mercy pulls us beyond just keeping our heads above the water, and it helps us to really live. This mercy demands our attention. We're called to focus not just on the woes, not just on the things that need to change, but on mercy. That's where God calls us to turn, to practice, to reach. Whether we're the one lying in the ditch or the one gathering the courage to draw near. Friends, wherever you are, in the ditch or on the road, look for the mercy Offer it up. Take it in. Let it be what defines us. If you long for abundant life, if you long for kin, start by turning towards mercy.